Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Welcome to a special year-end wrap-up episode of Inside the Vatican. The coronavirus pandemic upended everyone's plans for 2020, including the Vatican's. From the first weeks of the pandemic, when Pope Francis prayed for the world in the rain in St. Peter's Square, to the London finance scandal, to the new standards of transparency ushered in by the McCarrick Report, it has been an unprecedented year in every way. So this week on the show, we're recapping the biggest Vatican moments of 2020. I'm Colleen Dully. This is Inside the Vatican. Good morning from New Orleans, Jerry. Good afternoon from Rome, Colleen. I'm looking forward to the new year and hopefully a very different year to the one we've been through. Right. You certainly can't talk about the year 2020 without talking about the coronavirus pandemic. This was the framing for the whole year, basically, even though it only started in March. I mean, it's it's really taken up the year. Um, and so we're going to split our conversation into to three parts. We're going to talk about transparency in the Vatican this year. We're going to talk about their kind of missionary focus. And then we're going to talk about solidarity, because these have been three areas that especially the Pope has focused on during this pandemic. Vatican police have arrested Gianluigi Torzi, an Italian businessman involved in a controversial London real estate deal. released its investigation of Theodore McCarrick, who used to be one of America's most powerful religious leaders. This report names other high-ranking officials who knew about the allegations but did nothing. So first off, under transparency, you know, this pandemic gave the Vatican a chance to buckle down and work on some of its internal problems, right? And and this year we saw some big steps towards transparency. I'm thinking about, you know, the different financial reforms that we've seen. We saw new rules to prevent nepotism in awarding contracts, or we saw this ongoing investigation into the London finance scandal. And we also saw a big push for transparency around the release of the McCarrick report. So, Jerry, you know, in terms of Vatican transparency, uh, where are we now versus where we were in January? Well, the big news, of course, was the publication of the McCarrick Report. Mm -hmm. And that was made possible by a decision that Francis took in December of 2019 when he lifted the pontifical secrets over the abuse cases. A senior Vatican official said to me, with the McCarrick report, he has sent a silver bullet through the pontifical secrets, because never in recorded memory of the Church has the Vatican put out such detail about the appointment of a bishop and about the abuse and who was uh, accusing him and who wasn't, who was covering up, etc. So this was a historic uh, watershed moment in the Church. So when you're when you're talking about this silver bullet through the pontifical secret and also this lifting of the pontifical secret, I feel like we should point out that the December 2019 lifting of the pontifical secret was uh, specifically about abuse cases. But this silver bullet through the pontifical secrets 
you're talking about not just that one that he lifted, but also the classification around bishop's appointments. Yes, I would ask any of our listeners to to check back in the history books. Is there any place you can find where you track how uh, the Archbishop of Washington got appointed and who was in favor of him, who was uh, objecting, and who took the final decisions and why? Yeah, I think that brings us to a question, though, about the transparency measures that we might see going forward, right? A lot of people were asking, will there be similar reports to the McCarrick report? Will we get this sort of transparency in the future about bishops' appointments, or was this a one-off? And I think that's still an open question going into 2021. I think there are two questions. Whether we have more detailed reports on some of the abuse situations, like perhaps the Maciel case, that's the founder of the Legionaries of Christ, mm-hmm. Uh, who is like a mirror image to the McCarrick case. Uh, There's a lot of people saying that we should have a similar report in the Maciel case. And then there's the question of what's happening in Poland, whether we would have something similar to what happened in Chile uh, with another investigation. And uh, the one who's obviously coming in under the spotlight here is John Paul II's secretary, Cardinal uh, Jivic, who is now over 80, who was the former Archbishop of Krakow, but for on more than 30 years, uh, 30-something years, he was secretary to John Paul II and a man who is privy to so many of the secrets of the Church in that second half of the 20th century. And Jerry, um, how about in terms of the finance reform? Where are we in January and where are we now in December? Oh boy, we have moved, Colleen. Uh, <laughs> Tell me about it. Even from the pontificate of Paul VI, but through John Paul II's time, the Church has been mired in scandals related to finance in the Vatican. It was through John Paul II, then Benedict, and Francis came in with the brief from the pre-conclave meetings from the gathering of the cardinals to clean up house, and he has really gone far, far towards achieving that goal. Because this year, he has, uh, first of all, most recently, approved legislation governing the awarding of contracts and the investments in the Vatican. This is a very big uh, decision because it means that uh, the past system of cronyism, cover-up, you didn't know what was happening. And he has now put in structure a legal framework and appointed people to implement it so that when another contract is issued or when an investment is made, like was made in London, there's going to be lots of checks and balances before any contract is is made or is given to a person or before any investment is made. Another thing that we'll keep an eye on is uh, the the ongoing investigation into the London finance scandal, right? This was the purchase of that building in London, and we have a lot of investigations going on into the middlemen. Um, and Jerry, you said that we're going to be expecting uh, charges to be filed and possibly some trials next year, right? Yes, and of course, at the heart of it, uh, there is the role of the Cardinal Bichu, whom the Pope removed from his office as prefect of the Congregation for Saints and who, whom he deprived of his rights of cardinal so he can't vote in the conclave. So he, he will be at the center of attention in this when the prosecutors decide to move to trial and to make charges. Yeah, certainly. Nuevos caminos. Hacer una iglesia que es 
compañera, amiga que nos escuche. At 83 years old, under the rain and 51 degrees Fahrenheit, and in front of a deserted St. Peter's Square, Pope Francis sent this message to humanity. Fite tenebre si sono addensate sulle nostre piazze, strade e città. The finance was one big topic at the pre-conclave meetings, but you remember that on the Saturday before they went into conclave, Cardinal Bergoglio spoke and said that the church has got to stop being self-referential and focusing on itself. It's got to look out. It's got to go out. And uh, so this kind of missionary thrust, which he brought with him and which he uh, has pushed through the pontific, his seven, almost eight years as, as pope, uh, it has been a central theme that I, I think I'd be interested in hearing what you have picked up on that, Colleen. Yeah, I think this year was a, a big uh, year for that. You know, somewhat paradoxically, I think when we went into lockdown, people expected the Pope to maybe go into lockdown too. Uh, but instead, it was quite the opposite. Francis was really trying to reach out to people more directly. So we saw that, for example, in uh, him allowing his daily masses to be televised. You and I talked a lot about that back in March. Um, Francis had really not wanted that to happen earlier in his pontificate, but he thought that this was a moment to be able to reach people, and it did reach people. I think a million people in Italy, right? Oh, mi millions, millions, because it was picked up in Italy. It was transmitted by the national television channel one in the seven and seven o'clock in the morning, and then it was, of course, uh, retransmitted through the internet, through the live streaming, and was seen in many parts of the world because there was also translations with it. And uh, th this has been a, a major... Each morning he had a message and pe people were waiting to see what he would say. Our Holy Father now with monstrance in hand is going out onto the steps of St. Peter's right now, out into the rain. We also saw the... Um the televised Urbi at Orbi. This was usually Pope Francis does a blessing for the church in the world, right? That's what that means um, on Easter and on Christmas. But he added one in March. Actually, it ended up being on, on the deadliest day of Italy's first coronavirus wave. Um, and this was when he was really trying to reach out to people and gave this message of, you know, we're all in the same boat together. God hasn't abandoned us and and gave this, this extraordinary blessing. But I mean, you and I talked about this the day that it happened. I, I think that this is going to go down as one of the the big iconic moments of of the Francis papacy. Certainly. I mean, I, we've had two great moments, I'd say, in cinematic terms. One was the departure of Benedict from the Vatican. You remember this, the the helicopter circling the Vatican, and, and this was like out of out of Hollywood, and the one who'd helped it had taken a cue from Fellini. <laughs> and now we saw this on the 27th of March, Francis there in the rain-swept cold square and nobody in the square and only with his master of ceremonies beside him. So it, it, Hollywood, again, it would have struggled to create such a scene <laughs> where the atmospherics and the moment and the message combined so forcefully. And this was really something somewhat like the daily masses that, that reached out far beyond just the Catholic community, right? This this really touched people around the world. I remember seeing a, a tweet from someone who was not Catholic who said, you know, how can you not be moved by 
this 83-year-old, now 84-year-old pope sort of limping, hobbling. You know, he, he walks a little unevenly, but out into the rain, trying to hold up this giant monstrance above his head to, to bless the empty square and bless the world. I think at that moment, Colleen, coronavirus was hitting so heavily. Yeah. And it was beginning to hit hard in the States at that time again. Yeah, it was. And uh, I think people felt they, they, they felt powerless. They had so many technological advances. We were in the new uh, industrial revolution, technological revolution. And suddenly we, we seemed powerless in the front of an invisible enemy. And I think that people felt the need for God. And many people began to pray at that moment. That's right. There were a number of surveys of people saying that, that even if they were not religious, they had started praying during the pandemic. Um, that sort of brings us to another point here, you know, in, in terms of just the Vatican increasing its outreach, increasing its missionary work. Um, we've seen an ongoing reform of the Roman Curia, where Francis has really been trying to prioritize evangelization, right? You you reach people where they are, and then you preach the gospel to them. You preach them the good news, which I think people need more than ever right now. And so one of the big things that happened this year was that uh, Francis put Cardinal Tagle in charge of the Congregation for the Evangelization of Peoples, which he has now made uh, like a preeminent office in the Vatican, even above the doctrine office. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, I, I would say two things. First of all, about the reform, which you mentioned, Colleen. Mm -hmm. Uh, many people have said, well, you know, he's been Pope seven years and he hasn't still finished restructuring the, the Vatican, reforming it. Uh, what they forget is that since 1588, when the, the big restructuring reorganization of the Vatican administration, the civil service of the church was done, only four popes have tried to reform it. And Francis is the fourth. Mm. Secondly, each one has left their own mark on it, in a way. And Francis is leaving the missionary mark. He wants the church going out to preach the gospel, to preach Christ to the, to the world, as the hallmark of his reform. And we're expecting that reform to have another big step pretty soon, right? Yes, it, it, we expect perhaps by Easter, certainly by June, people have signed off on the basic law. They call it the Constitution for the Roman Curia, which will be the, the fundamental law that governs it. And then he will begin to appoint new people to top posts, because many of the people who are in the top positions in the Vatican right now, in the top heads of the congregations, as head of the Vatican departments, as it were, mm -hmm. were appointed originally by Benedict. Now Francis will have the possibility in the next six months, in the next 12 months, of putting all his own people in the key positions. Got it. So this could be a big shakeup and and possibly a big change of priorities that it seems likely Francis will continue to prioritize missionary work. Absolutely a change of priorities. Because in the past, the most dominant office in the Vatican was the Congregation for the doctrine of the faith, formerly called the whole office. In other words, the doctrinal czar, as it were. And Francis said, well, that's not really, you know, the, Christ gave us the job to preach the gospel. So evangelization is first, mm -hmm. not the secretariat of state, not this uh, congregation. And so he's put the congregation for the evangelization of peoples at the top. And he's put a Filipino who is of Chinese origin at the head of it. And 
That's looking to Asia where Francis really sees a future for the church. Africa and Asia are the places that he sees the future of the church. And the Filipinos, number two, is an African. Mm -hmm. We also saw uh, a big document that focused on missionary work, Carita Amazonia, right? This was the final document that was summing up the the Amazon Synod. It was it was Pope Francis's kind of last deciding word on on the Synod, if you will. Um, and this one really focused on missionary work too in the Amazon, um, especially on the importance of of lay people as missionaries. Um, I thought that was a, a really significant uh, document from the year. I think this document has been underestimated in the comments in the media because many people said, well, he didn't uh, approve of the ordination of married men. But it, what Francis did was much, much bigger. Mm -hmm. he, he, he approved a document that covers seven countries of the Amazon region, and he said lay people are to be the central focus of this. They're there to have a major role. And then he said an Amazonian right. Now, we've not had a new right in the Catholic Church for centuries. And what goes into that Amazonian right, we have to see. And he didn't say no to uh, the ordination of married men. He just didn't say yes or no. He didn't say anything. And so these questions are not closed. These questions are not closed. Yeah, I think what people need to understand about this document is that it sort of lays the groundwork for then the local church in the Amazon region to take the next steps, right? It opens the door for them to come up with new roles for lay people, new officially recognized roles. It lays the groundwork for them to come up with the texts for an Amazon right and to propose those to the Vatican. And, uh, and also one thing that might happen out of this is that people are expecting the Amazonian bishops to come together, create their own sort of regional bishops conference. They have created this now. Yeah. And so th th that could be quite significant because you have a Latin American bishops conference and now you have the Amazonian bishops. Right. And this can focus on the very specific problems that they're facing, right? This deforestation, you know, kind of the growing divide between the rich and the poor. The protection of the indigenous peoples, Colleen. That, that, that is fundamental because this is one of the big problems. Quindi, la solidarietà oggi è la strada da percorrere verso un mondo post-pandemia. In the new encyclical, Pope Francis will call for solidarity, personal and community responsibility in the face of difficult challenges such as a pandemic, which has shown that the world is more connected than ever. Carita Amazonia kind of solidly positions the church on the side of those, the, the poor, the indigenous people, people whose, whose rights are being violated, right? It really stresses this message of solidarity, which I thought was also a big theme that Francis drew out a lot at the end of this year in Fratelli Tutti and in his new interview book, Let Us Stream, that he did with Austin Ivory. Um, and Jerry, I was hoping we could kind of end the show by talking about this theme of solidarity that Francis stressed so much, especially at the end of this year in these two big documents. Um, can you kind of outline for us the the model of solidarity that Francis lays out? Like if you were to tell somebody in an elevator, they asked you, you know, okay, Francis talks about solidarity. What does he mean? What would you say? Well, I, I'd say, first of all, you've got to remember that the concept solidarity goes right back to the beginning of the church. Mm-hmm where you read in the Acts of the Apostles that they, they made collections to help the poor people in Jerusalem. So th this helping each other was part and parcel of the newness of Christianity. And for Francis, he says, we've got to see 
each other, not as adversaries or opponents or some friends and not friends. We've got to see, first of all, each other as brothers and sisters, children of the one father. And the one father expects us to treat each other as brother and sisters, to help each other, to stand with each other in times of difficulty and crisis, and to help people get through the life threatening situations or the, the difficult moments of life. So solidarity means you're standing with the other people. And in the in the document on uh, Querida Amazonia, which means beloved Amazonia, Francis made very clear that we stand with the indigenous people. The church stands with the indigenous peoples of the Amazon. We stand with those uh, people who are defending uh, trying to protect the environment from exploitation and destruction. We stand with them. And indeed, uh, Colleen, Francis, when he canonized Archbishop Romero, he was moving into a territory that hadn't been explored in the appointment, in the uh, approval of saints in the past, that standing for justice and uh, for the protection of the environment, etc., are fundamental Christian tasks. Archbishop Romero was an example of solidarity. Right. And Rutilio Grande, the Jesuit, who was now, they will be looking to uh, beatify perhaps in the coming year, was also. Jerry, I want to get back to something that you said about, you know, this accompaniment, this standing with the poor. Um, I think it's really significant in Fratelli Tutti and in Let Us Dream that Francis bases the solidarity. It's not it's not a savior kind of thing where, you know, someone's coming in and and heroically standing with someone, right? It's it's all based on friendship. It's based on a mutual understanding and on building a real relationship with someone who is struggling, right? With someone who is different from you. And I, I found that that was a message that was really striking to me in this year when, especially over here in the States, We've seen so much polarization, so much division, and then also our own social isolation. Yes, this is the heart of the message of uh, Fratelli Tutti. We're all brothers and sisters. We've got one God as Father. And he's saying, you know, this is the antidote to polarization. Polarization sets us apart. Mm -hmm. Solidarity brings us together. All right, so going into 2021, we will keep our eyes on these same themes, transparency, missionary outreach, solidarity, and also we'll keep an eye out for those those updates that Jerry mentioned were coming, uh, the the trials, the, the charges being brought in the financial scandals, but also the, uh, the potential that we've seen for developments in the Amazon around missionary work and also the uh, possible beatification of Father Rutilio Grande. Jerry, I hope that uh, this year's predictions end up being a little bit better than our predictions from last year. I don't think any of us saw, saw you know, the coronavirus pandemic coming. Um, but I just want to say thanks for, for another great year of, of Inside the Vatican with you. Thank you, Colleen. And I wish all our listeners uh, peace and good health in the new year. And I hope we'll be able to travel again. You'll be able to come to Rome, and they will be able to travel across the country. <laughs> Me too. Um, for our listeners, if you want to read Jerry's year in review story on the top seven Pope Francis stories of 2020, I'll link to that, along with some of our deep dive episodes, if you want to go farther into the things that we've talked about, in the show notes. 
Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This week's episode was produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Production assistance from the Jesuit Curia in Rome. Inside the Vatican is mixed by Noah Levinson. You can find in-depth and up-to-date Vatican coverage at americamagazine.org and follow us on Twitter at I-N-S-D-E Vatican Pod. That's inside without the second I, Vatican Pod. You can also email us your questions and comments at insidethevatican at americamedia.org. For America Media with Gerard O'Connell, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Deli. We'll see you next time. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.